So can someone please tell me why we're discussing a topic that is eight syllables long? Do we hate ourselves that much? This episode is sponsored by Hire.com. Every week on Hire, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on Ruby developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average Ruby developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $1,000 bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hire.com slash Ruby Rogues. I'm excited to tell you about a new sponsor of the show, Rollbar. One of the frustrating things about being a developer is dealing with errors. Ugh. Relying on users to report errors, digging through log files to debug issues, or a million alerts flooding your inbox ruining your day. With Rollbar's full-stack error monitoring, you get the context, insights, and control you need to find and fix bugs faster. It's easy to install. You can start tracking production errors and deployments in 8 minutes or less, or automatically create new issues in GitHub, Jira, Pivotal Tracker, etc. We have a special offer for Ruby Rogues listeners. Go to rollbar.com slash rubyrogues, sign up, and get the bootstrap plan free for 90 days. That's 300,000 errors tracked free. Give Rollbar a try today. Go to rollbar.com slash rubyrogues. This episode is sponsored by Shippo. Shippo is a shipping API that connects you with over 15 different shipping carriers such as FedEx, UPS, USPS, Canada Post, and Uber Rush in one integration. You can use Shippo's APIs to compare shipping rates across carriers, print discounted labels, validate shipping addresses, track packages, and power your shipping in many different ways. You can connect directly to the API or use the provided Shippo Ruby gem to print your first label in a few minutes. The Shippo API is free to use. You only pay for the actual shipping label and a 5 cent label fee. Sign up by going to GoShippo, that's G-O-S-H-I-P-P-O dot com slash Ruby Rogue to get six months with zero label fees. Hello and welcome to Ruby Rogue. Today on our panel we have Dave Brady. Sky TV listeners, press the red button now. Sam Livingston Gray. The only true wisdom consists of knowing that you know nothing. Hey, that's us. And me, Coraline Ada MP, and we have a special guest today, Cameron Dutro. Hi, Cameron. Hello from San Francisco. Cameron, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm Cameron Dutro. I work at Lumos Labs. We make a product called Lumosity, which is an online brain training uh, app and set of games. And I've been doing internationalization work for probably five or six years. So I started at Twitter and uh, eventually moved to Lumosity. And yeah, just really excited to come talk to you guys today. Awesome. So I'm very interested to hear how you got started doing internationalization. But first... I want to ask, what is the difference between internationalization and localization? I think that's something that a lot of people kind of get confused about. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. So the way that I think about this is that, that localization is the process of translating text. So you have some interface element or some message box or something like that that you want to translate. And that translation in Spanish or Farsi or, or whatever is just basically a, a text replacement in most cases. So you have uh, the English text, and then you have the translated text, and that just gets replaced in the UI element or the message box or whatever it is, the email maybe. Uh, so that's the process of localization, that's translating the text. And then internationalization is the kind of, I like to call it everything else, because there are a lot of other important things to do when you, when you translate a, a website or a mobile app or something like that that are not necessarily just translation-related. So internationalization, for example, some of the tasks that come along with that would be equipping your application or website to be able to use translated text. There are other things like just making sure that your users um, are aware, you know, they, they can see the website. It feels like a native experience to them. Uh, so, for example, at Twitter, we, we did something kind of crazy for when we translated the website into right-to-left languages. So that would be Farsi, Arabic, Urdu. And the whole website, if you go to, to Twitter.com and, and you select a one of those languages, the entire website flips around on the vertical axis. So the whole website basically looks like it's it's being read from right to left instead of left to right. Uh, so does that give you a good idea of what those mean? Yeah, that's really helpful. Yeah. For our American listeners, how many people live in international? Oh my, that's, well, so let's see. That's a, I mean, probably the majority of the world's population. But in, in Twitter, for example, I think 70% of all of our users were outside the United States. 
So the U.S. has something like 400 million, 370 to 400 million people. And if you think of the population of the world as about six and a half billion, you know, 400 million is, is a drop in the bucket. I've been mm-hmm. to international. It's huge. Right? Oh, I missed the joke. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that is important. It is important to bring up the fact that, you know, most internet users are not in the U.S. And yet the websites that we, that we frequent, the websites that we build as developers, the tools we use, even the languages that we write in are sort of English centric, aren't they? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. How bad of a problem is that, do you think, really? I mean, is it a serious problem with people not being able to get access to information that they really need because of a lack of like widespread internationalization? Or how much importance should we put on the issue? That's a, a really good question. So the companies that I've worked at, a lot of the revenue kind of goals that we have are, are rooted in having a, a product that can be reached by multiple you know, speakers of foreign languages. So, you know, Twitter, for example, I mentioned 70% of the users were outside the U.S. The, the main kind of growth goals of Twitter were enabled by being able to reach people in other countries and other languages. And I think that in, in many cases, you know, somebody uh, who speaks Chinese, for example, would be hard-pressed to use uh, a website in English because, you know, not only is the language different, the character set is also totally different. So they, they really can't even try you know, they would have to they have to wait for that website to be localized in Chinese. I, I think that, that also it's it's important to recognize that even the programming languages that we use as as a developer kind of community are all based around English. So all the keywords and all of you know all of the uh, the looping structures, everything that we use inside uh, inside a programming language are, are very much based around these English concepts. So we say if and then and while and do those things are very English based. So I think, and to some extent, you know, it's nice to have this kind of homogeneous uh, language in which to communicate other developers. You can kind of think of like the language of mathematics in, in a similar way, where math is something that kind of transcends cultural boundaries, but it's not necessarily something that everybody can, can grasp right away. So I guess I think of, of translations as kind of the same way where, you know, and programming languages specifically kind of the same way, they're kind of of the, the lingua franca of being able to make something that uh, you know your computer can interpret can do work for you. Um, so in, the, in that way, it's good, and the other, in kind of other ways, it's bad. Where you know it's more difficult as somebody who doesn't speak a foreign, you know, or English, as somebody as a foreign language speaker, it's more difficult to get into programming. I would imagine because of that language boundary. So when I was in college, I went to uh, Peru on a study abroad program. And uh, with a roommate of mine, we went and asked a bunch of native Spanish speakers. Uh, you know, how they use technology. And we kind of talked to a bunch of programmers and, you know, they, they said that, you know, it was definitely a little bit of a roadblock for them to learn programming because, you know, the words were, were not the same as they were, of course, used to speaking. And so that limited how they were able to get into the industry. Uh, you know, that being said, Spanish and English are close enough in terms of their grammatical structures that these, these programmers we talked to, you know, they, ha- they had kind of gotten over that hurdle, fortunately, and they were helping other people do the same thing. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you, you can imagine that if you have a couple of languages, you know, somebody speaks Chinese or Farsi or Hindi or something, you know, and they don't necessarily speak English, it would be much more difficult for them to get involved in programming and then, of course, the Internet at large. And of course, even if they can understand the words, it's still difficult to type them on various keyboards because the uh, characters are all Roman. Yes, absolutely. I reviewed some code years ago that was written by someone from, I think, Brazil, or no, he didn't speak Portuguese, Spanish, so Argentina, and it was a brain bender. I I speak English and I speak Spanish, and I got presented with a program that was like, if tiene underscore carro, question mark, (laughs) (laughs) carro, period, uh, you know, literally, it was like reading Spanish, but then there were these English language, you know, if, else, and if, while, do, loop, mixed in through, and then there would be comments, and then the comments would just be, you know, you just start rattling off Spanish again, and I'm like, wow. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely, I've seen that before as well, that's a, that is kind of a brain bender. The other, the other brain bender, and, and I actually haven't reviewed code this way, but I've definitely, you know, dealt with text that is right to left and and that's that's a huge brain bender too because you know you're in your terminal and you know you're i mean maybe you're using some active record model or something and you you print out this arabic string but it's rendered in this super strange backwards way and you know and by by strange it's strange to my to my sensibilities right yeah to uh to an arabic speaker of course it'd be totally normal 
But, you know, that text, because uh, of the way that it was English text, like so Roman letters and, and Arabic letters are often arranged, they, they use something called the Unicode bidirectional algorithm to determine kind of what text direction should be the text direction for each individual chunk of characters. And so, you know, you're, you're like using your mouse cursor to highlight parts of the text, and it highlights like in the, in the backwards direction you're expecting. And then when you get to the English text, it highlights in the other direction, and it's just, it's so confusing. And so, you know, not only does this happen in the terminal, but it happens, you know, when you're entering text into a web form, too. So, you know, it's one of those things where you just have to kind of like re realize what you don't know. You have to realize that you're going to have to adopt kind of a different strategy for thinking about input, which is so fundamental to how I use a computer that it was really hard for me to grasp that at first. We're very fortunate that no one uses hieroglyphics because hieroglyphics could actually be written right to left or left to right, and you knew <laughs> which way to read based on which way the eyes were focused. <laughs> I would say it's the, the Chinese is written right to left and then right to left and then left to right and then right to left, and then you can actually draw a box as you go. Like if you're doing the verticals, holy heck. Oh, man, wow. I didn't know that. Chinese is messy because over time... They would trade emperors, and the emperor would say, new rule, everything is written top to bottom, right to left. Top to bottom, top to bottom. And then, then, then the next emperor came in and said, no, left to right, right to left, left to right, right to left. And it changes. And whether you start left to right or start right to left, it, it's like important. There's, well, it changes, the, the right way to do it changes depending on which century you're in. It's amazing. So that's more of a, more of a challenge for people trying to do OCR, because you... You look at a document and you have to figure out, okay, what century is this from? Because that completely changes. Is this a guy who has turned blue or is this blue man group? You know, it, <laughs> we don't know. With the, uh, with the way the news has been lately, I often wonder what century I'm living in. Yeah, oh. seriously. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there went my Esperanto joke. <laughs> oh! <laughs> I was on Usenet back in the 90s and there was a guy there that spoke Farsi and he had done something absolutely amazing. This is a little bit of a, a war story, which Katrina would, would frown on a little bit, but uh, this is one of the cooler war stories, so plus it's not my war. Anyway, um, this guy spoke Farsi or Arabic, and back then you had to stitch together your own fonts. The computer only had one font, and so what you had did is you could actually go out to a memory location, which was B00000 in memory, and that was actually on the video card, or it, it was in video memory on the computer, and you could change which bits were on and off to change which letter of the alphabet was which. And this is, so what this guy did is he went through and he, he rewrote all of the letters on the keyboard to map to Farsi symbols so that he could get, I think it was Farsi, I know it was a right to left language, but he mapped them all out and he, he wrote them backwards. And like he, he rendered them backwards. And then, this is the cool part, he turned his monitor 90 degrees and stuck a mirror in front of it. So that it would, the letters would be rendered in the left or right to left and his typing would come out right to left. That's how important, wow. that's how important right to left rendering was to this guy. And at the time I thought it was freaking hilarious. And it was only later that I realized, no, no, this isn't hilarious. It's important. That's incredible. What a good story. Do, do you have like a, I'd love to see a link to like a. I will ask a Google. Google yeah. I will ask Google. Awesome. I, obviously, for reasons, uh, this did not catch on in the mainstream. <laughs> so I think it was just one guy hacking in his garage, but yeah. Yeah, I was expecting you to say something like he hacked the uh, display code so that it would actually print them right to left, but that's even better mm -hmm. using a mirror. That's a, yeah. a nice, simple, non-technical hack. So I guess uh, earlier on I was wondering if there was any overlap between internationalization and accessibility issues, but it seems like internationalization is fundamentally an accessibility issue in that if your text is in English, most of the world ain't going to be able to read it. That said, uh, I wonder if there are any, any overlaps. Like, are there ways that we could use internationalization to provide different uh, descriptions of things? I'm just making stuff up here. Yeah, you know... I think that like accessibility and internationalization, they kind of fall, at least for me, they kind of fall into this category of, of altruism, I suppose. So, you know, like Wikipedia, for example, they're a great organization to look to, you know, for an organization that does good internationalization. And when you talk to them about it, they feel, or they, you, you kind of, you feel this real sense of, of stewardship and altruism from them. I think you feel that, you know, just about them in general, because what they're doing is, you know, collecting all human knowledge and giving it away for free. But the fact that 
that when you talk to their localization people, they're, they're just very passionate about being able to bring that content to an international audience. You can definitely kind of feel that in, in what they're saying. And I think that that's one of the big reasons that I enjoy, you know, doing internationalization and localization work because I know that what I'm doing is helping bring something that would have been inaccessible to somebody, you know, into their lives and, and making it accessible to them. And in accessibility is, is a very similar concept where, you know, it's something that somebody would not have been able to access before and you're giving them the ability to do that. So, you know, whether that means adding ARIA text for screen readers or I think even outside of software, you know, making sure that somebody who, you know, uses a wheelchair can access the building, you know, your office building or whatever, like all those things are really bringing somebody, you know, into the fold who, who wouldn't have been able to get there before. I am. Um, I make a point in several of my talks about open source. I sort of ascribe. I, I talk about the the um, tragedy of the commons, which I think everyone's probably pretty familiar with. You have a village green. Everyone's allowed to graze their animals there. If every person acts according to their own self interest, they will grow their herds to the maximum size and consume all the available resources, which of course is bad for the community. And the analogy I draw to open source is that it's not the production of our intellectual output that is a scarce resource, but it's access that is a scarce resource. And that what our established systems of power and dominance, and this includes cultural dominance, are doing are limiting the people who can even participate. And that that's the true tragedy of the modern commons. So with internationalization, with accessibility, all of these things can be used to enforce a class distinction or enforce a, a ruling class, if you will, of the internet of people who are English speakers. And whether that's deliberate or not, it's it's a real tragedy. Yeah, I totally agree with that. You know, and that maybe is kind of where that, that altruism comes from because you're, you're giving people, at least in the case of Twitter and Wikipedia, you're giving people you know a voice that they wouldn't have had before. You know, And I think people who, uh, for example, Chinese speakers, you know, they, they could have used Twitter beforehand, but you know, they would have had to speak English, understand the interface. They could have tweeted in Chinese, I suppose. But yeah, but that access is, I think that's also a big problem just, you know, globally and, and also just in the United States where a lot of underrepresented minorities don't have access to a lot of things. You know, they don't have access to education and have access to, you know, often food and things like that. And so, and, you know, it, it, these people can be really invisible. And I, I go to back to the internationalization arena here and, you know, say that a lot of developers, I think, don't, they don't think about how their features and how their audience is more than just the people that are like them. So if, you know, if they're English or they're, they're, they speak English, you know, natively, uh, and they're building a website for other English speakers, you know, they don't often think beyond that. And I think that that can be dangerous. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, that's the thing that comes up a lot with um, discussions of diversity. Diverse teams solve diverse problems because if you have a team that is homogenous, they are only aware of the problems that face their particular community or demographic, and they are unaware of the implications of the things that they write for people who are different from them. And then you wind up with things like Facebook's real name policy, which is uh, problematic for a number of populations. <laughs> or um, try changing your name on PayPal if you're trans. Good luck with that. They actually oh, tell wow. you. They actually tell you to cancel your account and start a new one because it's impossible. That's their, that's their actual wow. recommendation. You cannot change Jeez. your name on PayPal. Awesome! Wow. <laughs> cancel your account and create a new one. That I, I do the first step. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That seems almost violent to me. I think it, it is a. It is by some definitions that it's a form of violence. I I would totally agree with you, David. Right. I need you to cease to exist and come back as a different person. I just sort of, never mind, I don't want to go off on a tangent, but I have, I have horror stories. But it all does come back to either developer ignorance or indifference, or maybe even if there is a developer on the team who is advocating for this stuff, uh, it's hard to get the product manager or the business side to greenlight the time spent doing it. So, yeah. Right. In Agile, we, we pride ourselves on doing the important thing first, right? What is the most important thing? Well, the reality is, is the product owners end up stack ranking all their features based on are they worth it? And worth it is a calculation of how much perceived value divided by how much perceived cost. And we know how much it's going to take to internationalize or localize. And if you have a whole bunch of, you know, white dudes sitting around writing the code, they're going, well, you know, they can speak English. There's no perceived benefit here. 
I take exception to one thing you said there, David. I don't think that as developers we do know the cost of internationalization and localization because it's yeah, not something true. that most of us even do. So, Cameron, yeah. I noticed that you created a couple of, or you've been involved in creation of a couple of tools. There's TXGX and something called Rosette, and I take it that one of those is more or less a library and the other one is more or less a service. Can you talk about those a little bit? Yeah, totally. So I'll go in chronological order. So. Um, when I was working at Twitter, we, we had this thing called the Translation Center, and it's a translate.twitter.com, and it's a, it's a crowdsourced platform, so anybody can go and sign up for an account there and use the tool to translate the website into their language, and there's a bunch of, of moderator tools and stuff that are built into it. And it's, it's a pretty cool platform, and I, I was, when I was working there, you know, I noticed a couple of problems with it, uh, and problems that the organization wasn't really interested in solving. Just because you know of of resource allocation and whatnot, uh, so when I left Twitter in 2014, I thought you know I could probably take a stab at you know fixing these issues. So when I joined Lumosity, uh, one of the things that I said I'd like to do when I was working here uh, was would be to to build a better internationalization platform or, or localization platform. And they were like, okay, yeah, sure, we'll we'll let you do that. So I started working on Rosette. Uh, and Rosetta is, is, is like a service. It's also like a library. It's, it's really a bunch of different smaller libraries put together into one. So you configure this thing and then, you know, it helps coordinate the translation of your content. So it, it, what it does is it checks this, it, it uses a, a library. It's actually built on JRuby and it uses a, a Java library called JGit to notice when Git has changed. So you'll, you know, you'll post up a change and that change will contain, uh, you know, changes to your, your translation files and Drozet will notice that and then take those translation files and automatically move them up to some translation service, uh, which of course in, in Twitter's case would have been the translation center. Um, but in other people's cases, so in other companies' cases, a lot of companies will contract with companies like Smartling or TransFX uh, or Lionbridge, which are, are translation vendors and they have their own tools that help translate content. So they, they have an interface for translating the content and they kind of manage that whole that whole process for you. And so Rosetta is just the, the back end that connects GitHub to these translation services. Uh, so Rosette was the, the first stab at kind of doing that. And it, it uses Git, it tracks everything via the commit SHA. So like an individual phrase that comes from your translation content. So in, in Rails, that would be something like en.yaml. I think it's config locales en.yaml. It takes that content, moves it up there, and, and then attaches the commit SHA to that. And when you want to go download your translations, it says, okay, so what was the last time this file changed? It uses some Git magic to, to figure out when the last time that file changed was, and then it goes into the database of translations that we have, pulls those out, and delivers them to you. So it's this very dynamic system, and, and it was something that we used for, for a long time. We, we eventually kind of realized, though, that it wasn't exactly what we needed. It was a little too much, a little too complicated. And one of the big reasons for that was because we were using a translation a TMS system, a translation vendor system called Smartling, and they, they didn't have a, a super well-fleshed-out API, so we had to do kind of a bunch of little tricks to download what's called a translation memory, which is a big XML file, and parse that and get strings out of it, and it was a lot of complexity that was kind of built into, into Rosette, into the, specifically into one of the Rosette gems. And so we realized, you know, that there's got to be an easier way than this to, to do this. And so we, we were looking around, we found this other tool that was initially built by the company called Strava. And we had heard about it kind of through one of my industry contacts. And the guy said, well, um, you know, we, we've been building this thing. And, uh, you know, it's been working for us for a while now. It's called TXGH and, and TX for TransFX and GH for GitHub. So TransFX being... Uh, basically another uh, translation management system like Smartling, which is an alternative to that. So we were switching to TransFX at the time, and so we said, oh, you know, let's give this thing a shot. So uh, at that point, Strava had transferred control of this, this library, TXGH, to TransFX, and then we forked it, Lumos Labs forked it, and started working on it to improve it, to add some features that we wanted. And kind of at this point, I think we're probably the major contributors, the, the, the biggest contributors to TXGH, uh, and also probably the, the biggest users of it. So it's, uh, it's something that like we've had to kind of iterate on, and, and that's one of the things that I wanted to kind of bring up, and that is that internationalization is really not, it's not a, a feature. Internationalization is a process. So we talk about, you know, continuous integration. We talk about continuous delivery. And what I'd like to kind of coin here is, is continuous localization, and that's what TXGH and Rosette were really created to do, to constantly look for changes in your, in your translations and, and push them up. Yeah. Yeah, in your, um, in your pre-show materials, you talked about iterative processes, and it seems to be right in line with the way you're describing a good 
internationalization and localization process happening is that it's it is iterative it is tied to development cycles it is all those things absolutely um how feasible is it for a small company without a lot of resources maybe without a resource to devote to internationalization to actually get their their website or their web application translated and keep it translated that's a great question you know so I've been to a couple of companies before, and I, I've never actually bootstrapped or helped bootstrap a company from kind of zero to translated. So my answer is going to be a little tempered by that. But, you know, kind of just the tool, the tools that I know of in the Ruby and Rails world, you know, they're fairly easy to learn. The process is, is not hindered necessarily, though, by the tools. It's really hindered by, I would say, time that you, that you need to take to, to do this to your website or your mobile app. Because uh, the process of integrating translations, it, it can be it can be a time-consuming and kind of tedious process. Uh, so for a small company, you know, it would probably take. And again, this is going to depend on the size of the app and size of the website. But I would probably budget, you know, a couple of months at least for for doing the initial work, and then and when it's been integrated into your site or mobile app, then it's time to kind of go into that maintenance phase. But that maintenance phase is going to need to be very active. So you need to constantly make sure that you know something that you thought was was translated, you know, is now translated, all that content's pushed up to your translation management system. So there needs to be some stewardship there, some maintenance there as well to make sure that continuous localization happens. So, you know, it's 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 worth saying that the upfront cost might be, you know, might be a certain number of months, but then you also have to be just willing to to maintain it for basically the entire life of the of the product. How feasible is it to crowdsource translation? Well, so for Twitter, it, it really was a great solution because the users of Twitter were just very, very passionate people, and, and they still are, I mean, to this day. We had one translator who, uh, he, this was, we, the site was not even available in Chinese, but uh, he went into the translation center, and he basically hacked the URL. He, like, changed the locale in the URL to Chinese, uh, ZH, I think it was ZHCN he changed it to, and he went through and translated, like, over 10,000 phrases in, like, oh, man, it was, like, a couple of hours and he realized i know and he realized after he had done this that he actually put in the wrong locale he wanted to put in ZHTW, and so he went back and hacked the url again and translated all ten thousand of those phrases again oh so like wow. in, in a in a 24 to 48 hour period wow. this guy translated oh, like twenty thousand. yeah it was crazy so and he was obviously just a very passionate twitter user you know he really wanted to see the website in his language he wanted to bring it to his friends that maybe didn't speak english and so, you know, and we also, we went to Google Translate and we checked his translations and we were like, no, he's, he's actually doing this. He's actually like just pounding out these translations one after the other. So, you know, that kind of, that kind of passion, that kind of drive and that kind of user base is really a good candidate for doing crowdsource translations. And that's why it worked for Twitter. I don't think that it works for every platform. So, you know, <laughs> so platforms like Twitter, like Wikipedia, maybe like Facebook, Facebook actually has, um, but they have inline translations. So you can go into Facebook and, and, you know, elect to translate and the entire interface kind of becomes live and you can click on individual pieces of the interface and translate them. So they, they have some pretty cool tools for that. And it works for them really well too. But for a company like Lumosity uh, and, and maybe smaller companies out there, you know, there's there's not that rabid user base who are just very, very interested in translating the website or the mobile app. So for those, I would say that you know, most of the time you want to go with, with a translation vendor, you know, somebody who's able to sell you the resources to translate. Sure. Uh, translate. So, so what I'm hearing there is that if crowdsourcing is an option for you, you're popular and successful enough that you can afford to hire somebody to do it. That's not necessarily the case. I had a great experience with translation earlier this year with Contributor Covenant, the um, open source code of conduct. Someone posted an issue saying, hey, why isn't this available in other languages? And I was like, that's a great question. So I put out a call on Twitter for translations, and within a month, Contributor Covenant has now been translated into 16 different languages. And my rule was that it could not be the work of a single translator. Someone else who was a native speaker had to review the translation to make sure that the, the nuances were there. And um, mm-hmm. it was it was an incredible effort that the community put forward. And uh, I was so thankful and so humbled. So, you know, that's, okay. that's still something that's possible. People are good sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a great example. That's very cool. Congratulations that you that the community was able to, to rally to do that. That's very cool. Yeah, I was really impressed. It was uh, that was very great. I don't know, you know, that's so maybe for projects that are just kind of inherently open, you know, and, and Twitter's got a lot of flack 
recently for not treating their developers very well and, and you know other things like that. But the platform still remains a really cool platform. It's you know it's very it's very dynamic. It's got a lot of individual people speaking on it. it gives a lot of uh, people a voice, and it's totally free. So that being said, you know I think that's why you get the number of people who contribute the way they do on the translation center. And it sounds like the, you said it was the open source code of conduct core line? Contributor covenant. Yeah. The contributor covenant. I'm sorry. Yes. So that right there also, you know, obviously it applies to so many people and I'm sure that a lot of people are very passionate about that. So they will, they were happy to dedicate their time. And, you know, a company like Lumosity really doesn't see that kind of engagement, I guess. Um, the, pro, the platform is still a great platform and the games are, are fantastic. And I, I really believe in our mission, you know, but it's a product that people really buy. You know, it's not, a product that people would use to communicate with other people or so it doesn't lend itself really well to that crowdsource translation techni- uh, technique. Yeah. So um, a little bit earlier in the show, several of us went looking for a wonderful blog post called Falsehoods Programmers Believe About Names, which is wonderful, and we'll drop a link in the show notes. But I was wondering, how do internationalization issues affect database schema design? I mean, I know that how you store names and phone numbers is important. Are there other gotchas that will that will sneak in there wow that, that's a great question so you said database schemas I'm, I'm looking at this article now i haven't had a chance to read it the um the uh, idea being that not everyone has first name middle name last name oh right or a name part of it or a name at all yeah right yeah th- that article they get progressively harder like everyone has a single unique identifying name everyone has mm-hmm. a single first name middle name last name everyone has a name that can be represented in just one character set Mm-hmm. And, and it ends with people have names and somebody calls him out and says, oh, come on, everybody has a name. And, you know, can you give a counter example? And he lists like two or three examples of people who don't have names. And what do you do in a system? We have bought into this falsehood so hard that we are blind to the fact that we have bought into it. We have an entire body of work based on whether or not someone has a name in the English speaking world, right? We call that person a John Doe. <laughs> Right, and and the reason you have John Doe or Jane Doe is because you have a form that is relentless. You must type in a single first name and a single unique last name for this person. And I love Sam's question about database schemas because all the internationals. I, I just realized, Sam, you just totally just caught me flat-footed because I'm realizing that, yeah, uh, I always use the same schema, and then internationalization is just a translation layer on top of that to translate things to and from America. And yeah, yeah. This is a really interesting article. I'm I'm enjoying it. And this the number of of things he has on his list. And then yeah, the one at the bottom, you know, is the assumption that people even have names. That's that's mm-hmm. really cool. Yeah, I haven't considered this before. Uh, you know, or really dealt with that before. And that's just one of you know my blind spots. Clearly, you know, just having yeah. never the, um, never the, talked to somebody who didn't have a name. The person who who challenged the people have names thing says, "Come on, the person who was a John Doe had a name. We just don't know it." And he's like, can you give me an example of somebody who doesn't have a name? And he's like, well, lots of infants are, are born and never named. Mm-hmm. And, and then he gave a really terrifying example, which was a fully grown woman born in Somalia, born into slavery, never oh, given wow. a name, all the way to adulthood, never has a name. Wow. wow. Well, uh, so since I asked the question, I should at least uh, punt our readers to something to read about it, or pardon me, punt our listeners to something to read about it. And uh, Karina Zona, for a number of years, has been giving a wonderful talk called Schemas for the Real World, Yes, um, where she talks about some of the implicit cultural biases in the way that you design your database. I love that talk. It also touches on some gender issues as well. The myth that there, that sex is a drop-down field. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm let alone a Boolean. (laughs) Now, come on, that's getting crazy, all right? It used to be just a Boolean, right? And then (laughs) you said we couldn't have the gender binary. You took that away from us, and now now you're saying, oh, God, we have to give you checkboxes now? You're not content with the list that we provide? (laughs) Refill text is the correct way to solve the problem Uh, of asking uh, gender. Can we just say other, please specify? No, that's... That's othering. Yeah, that's a, literally, literally othering, isn't it? Literally <laughs> othering. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. I was starting questions. Humor territory, and then it hit too close to the bone. Yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> I am curious. For so for for a, a drop down for for sex, what's the appropriate free to put there? Freeform text is the best way to solve that problem. Okay, makes sense. 
And um, Karina goes into uh, that inner talk about like the common concerns about that. Like, well, what about normalization? And it's like, actually, it's not that hard of a problem to solve when you look at the range of input values and you're able to make some decisions about how that data breaks out and still do some programmatic analysis of it. It does not, it does not break your analysis. So that was going to be my very next question is that it's well and good to allow somebody to specify male, female, herm. I don't know. I don't know what the, the, the other options are, but if you let somebody type something, and, and we're dealing with at Cover My Meds, we deal with patient gender, and people. Uh, some of the some of our customers out there are using a free form field, and it it gets tricky. And there's somebody on the people listening to the show. There's going to be somebody in marketing that's going to say yes, but how do I know which color of shoes to try to market to you if I don't have, you know, a, a boolean field to swap on? And I I like what you said about it doesn't break analysis. Yeah, I mean, you can simply ask people what their preferences are. Do you want to see advertising that is targeted to women or do you want to see advertising that is targeted to men? You can ask that question without asking anyone to out themselves with regard to their gender identity. Mm-hmm. Right, there's another You can meta. ask someone what their pronouns are instead of making tacit assumptions. So we've kind of gotten off the path here a little bit. <laughs> Um, but I have one job here. Yeah, <laughs> that's to get us off into the weeds. <laughs> These weeds are important, though. I mean, they're really, they really they're, are. They're, yeah, it, definitely. I was going to say they're really cool, and I don't want to trivialize them. They they are cool. I, it's I don't mean that in a trivializing way. I mean that in a sincere way. And and, and this really is kind of the heart of I18N and M10N and uh, this stuff. That's sad when it's actually easier to say the numbers than to just actually say the word, isn't it? I, uh, it's it's interesting because programmers we like to say, oh, I like to solve hard problems, and we're faced with some very concrete hard problems. We're like, I really don't know anything about internationalization. I really don't understand this whole gender thing. It's like you'll spend a weekend to learn Haskell, but you won't spend a weekend to learn best practices for internationalization. Seriously, programmers yeah. don't want to solve emotionally hard problems. They want to solve intellectually challenging ones. Don't. Saying that's not intellectually challenging. I'm saying, give, I'm saying, give me <laughs> a hack in your own brain to take out you guys. I I would rather I would rather work on a Rubik's cube all day than try to confront gender identity issues. Right. Yeah. So I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I'm, I I spoke in first person and I was using that as like the the implicit we there. Um, I, I'm not saying I genuinely feel that way. Right. But I mean, it's it's easier to figure out how am I going to use the the framework of this, that, and the other on top of, you know, rails through the da 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 That's clean, and it's emotionally tranquil and sterile, and it's safe, and I can... We know when we're done. And we know when we're done. We get that sort of false feeling of security that, oh, we've solved this problem now. It will not trouble us again. Yes. Yes. Whereas when you solve a hard emotional problem, you don't get that. What you get is more problems that are angry people. with, but yeah. Hmm? Yeah, that, what that's definitely. Is you get new, harder problems that uh, you know. You know, first you had to deal with one thing, and then you expanded your understanding, and now you see other places where you can grow and learn. Also I don't think problems that are is. human problems. Well, that too. Hey, didn't we yeah. have a guest at some point? <laughs> Hi, Cameron. Hi, Cameron. Welcome back to the show. <laughs> uh, no, this is great. This is awesome. The discussion is. Uh, Totally awesome. I wanted to say that I agree with the idea of like this. One of the things that I've learned from the show, you know, is that software is about people, not processes. It's not about, you know, coding, um, which is definitely a perspective that I hadn't had before I started listening to the show, especially in, in a lot of the recent episodes. And I started looking at all of these, you know, internationalization problems that I, I deal with on a daily basis and thinking like how people oriented they all are. Like we, if we were just, you know, working with computers all the time, we wouldn't have to internationalize anything because every, everything the computer can understand is just ones and zeros. So that would be very clean, it would be very easy, there'd be no emotions involved. But the fact that we have to translate, or the fact that, that people don't speak in those those languages, uh, you know, don't speak in ones and zeros, means we have to write programming, you know, we have to write uh, language in a source code, and that source code gets compiled or interpreted. That's kind of the same way that, or kind of the same thing that we're doing for, for people who don't speak English. We're helping them interpret this content that we have, you know, in this other language that they in this other language that they speak. So, yeah, no, there's there's kind of a parallel to be drawn there. I'm not doing a great job of drawing it, but 
the picture that I get from that is that maybe if your website is in English only, it's like you've written your code in assembly. Right. It'll only ever run on yeah. one machine. Exactly. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. I think we've done a pretty good job of underscoring why internationalization is important and some of the mechanics involved in getting started with internationalization. But what if I'm a developer and I've never really thought about this before and I want to educate myself on the topic? What are some resources that I could start looking at to get up to speed with the current state of internationalization? Yeah. Okay. So there are, this is, I'm coming at this from a, a Rails perspective, but and, and I would think that most people, when they come at internationalization, they're doing so from the concept or from the perspective of a framework. So whether that's Rails or Django or, you know, some, some JavaScript framework or, um, you know, iOS or Android, you know, they all generally have this concept of internationalization kind of built into them. Uh, that's not always true, of course, but if we take the Rails example, I mentioned that there are YAML files that you translate, so you know, en.yaml would be the English version, and es.yaml would be the Spanish version. Uh, and Rails has a pretty decent IETN guide, so the Rails guides, a uh, great resource really just in general for learning about Rails, but they have one for internationalization that's, that's pretty complete. So that's a, that's a great resource to start with, and just based on you know, kind of whatever framework you want to use, whether that be Django or iOS or Android, there are also guides for those. And so, you know, Googling for those will reveal them. They all kind of have their own kind of quirky way of doing it. So Rails uses YAML files. Android will use XML files. And iOS uses this proprietary .strings format. Uh, and then Django, I'm not sure what Django uses. I want to say it's JSON. I'm not sure. Uh, but all these different formats, you know, usually the, the translation management system that you choose will, will have that support for that format available. If you're wanting to learn like some of the nitty-gritty details about internationalization, so this is kind of beyond localization, there are a couple of tools out there that you can use for that. And, and um, the, the main canonical ones are ICU for J and ICU for C, and these are made by the IBM Corporation, so you know, big, big company and, and you know, very business-like and whatever, and they produce this really amazing software package called ICU or International Components for Unicode. And they have a Java version and they have a C version. So um, a lot of, uh, of frameworks out there, so I'm speaking specifically now, I guess, of iOS and Android, they use ICU for C. In it's, it's an interface you have available or an API you have available in your mobile apps to translate dates and times and to sort lists of internationalized words so, for example, like, you know, in Russian, uh, words are sorted in a different order than they would be, you know, if you're just using the ASCII or the just their code point sorting representation. So, you know, there's tools out there to do that. That's that's what I see you would do. What I have done also is, is worked on a project when I was at Twitter called Twitter CLDR, which is basically an ICU replayer, an ICU port for Ruby. Uh, CLDR stands for the Common Locale Data Repository, which is a, a, just a huge collection of data for internationalizing the content of your website or mobile app. It's a bunch of XML files. They're, they're reporting it to JSON as, as we speak. And they're trying to get that coordination that worked in. But CLDR is a really also really cool kind of uh, resource. It's a very technical resource. You know, just the, all these files which contain, you know, they, they contain things like how to format dates and how to take, you know, this list of, of you know, you have a list of currencies that are available on your website. They have translations kind of baked into these XML files for all these different currencies you might want to pay with. They have translations of language names. So if you want to say Spanish in Spanish, you say Espanol. It's a, a ton of different things in there. And uh, ICU is, I think, the major consumer of CLDR data, and so is Twitter CLDR. So finding like a good library for doing these things is also, I think, like another kind of big step forward. And you can learn a lot, I think, by reading uh, the Twitter CLDR README and, and also the README for uh, for ICU and, and just the websites they have set up for that. There's a lot of, of different interesting tidbits you can glean from those because you may not even realize that you know translating a date is something that's difficult or translating a, a timestamp is something that's difficult you know, or sorting a list of text or segmenting text you know, based on, because a lot of languages don't use spaces, so how would you segment text in other languages? You know, so it's, it's that kind of thing. And trying to kind of just get a handle on the things that maybe you don't know that you don't know, that would be another, a, a great way to kind of level up in the IETN space. That is awesome. Cameron, you, you mentioned at the top of the show that you can, you can go into like Twitter and, or uh, is it Facebook or is it both? And you can switch your language to Farsi and it will actually re-render the page right to left versus left to right. And, and I, I mentioned earlier on that, you know, 25 years ago, this was a bone-breaking technical challenge. I mean, like, literally, you would have to 
like resolder things to make make things scan in different different directions, right. kind of kind of thing. Yeah, and I mean because these things were embedded in the BIOS, which was in the hardware of the computer. I mean, you were not just going to change something in the operating system and get away with it. What do you do now? I, I I think there might be some people listening that think, oh, you switch your language to Farsi, and we give you a whole new front end. And I'm guessing that we don't that we that we've come such a long way now that we can actually just send something down the pipeline that says, oh, by the way, we're going to do everything right to left now. Or do you know what's technically involved with that kind of a change? I do a little bit, yeah. So, like, a lot of it is CSS. So there's a whole... <laughs> yeah. oh, no! I was going to make a joke that it's a CSS3 flag. That's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah it's, not, it's not one CSS3 flag. There, I mean, CSS does have now the, I think it's bidirection. They have that CSS property now. So the, and that helps... Uh, you know, that helps significantly when it comes to text rendering and things like that. But um, but the, there's CSS2 that is is just applying to each individual element. So, like, for example, the page has a CSS, you know, like a, a container div around it. And so, you know, the CSS for that page is you, you, inside that container, you'd have some float rights and float lefts, and you just, like, swap those float rights and lefts. So it's it's that kind of idea, but it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's not just one CSS property, thank God. Um, it would be awesome if it was, because it would be so easy just to add it and you'd be done. Yeah. Uh, but no, the, the browsers, like generally speaking, browsers have a lot more support for bidirectional languages than they used to. So the CSS, I think that actually, it may be a CSS3 property, the bidirection. I'm not sure though. Maybe it's been around for a while. Uh, at least now it's more supported in browsers. I found out that, in my opinion, CSS jumped the shark when they added, when, when Google added a skew to their search magic. If you, if you haven't seen this, do this right now. Just open up Google and type in askew, A-S-K-E-W, oh, and yeah, just hit awesome. enter, and just hit enter, and then watch your um, brain explode. Yeah. Uh, because that is Google so wrong. Will, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Google will mess with your head. And I'm actually really happy to see this. I mean, Googling askew is freaking awesome, but I'm, I'm really happy to see people using this power for good now instead of just for weird. Yeah, totally. You guys know the do a barrel roll trick? You type in do a barrel roll? No. Oh, yeah, that one's great. BRB Googling something. My favorite one is Conway's Game of Life. Oh, yeah, that one's great. Is it the one with the Zerglings? It actually does. Conway's Game of Life, it takes over your Google screen. Oh, there it is. There it is. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, do a barrel roll is beautiful. Yeah. Okay, I'm now fully distracted. Yeah. Yeah. Same. Mandy, could you ship some Ritalin to our houses, please, before the end of the show? Thank you. Yes. So, um, Cameron, is there anything else we should talk about before we go to picks? There's one thing that I'd like to bring up and, and I haven't kind of gotten the chance to yet, and that is talking about Unicode. So this is a, a pretty deep technical topic, and you know, I don't know if, if, if it's okay if you guys would like to go into that. We, we can. I just Do it. To, we'll, okay, Do it. Just a little intro to it. So, so Unicode is this standard developed by uh, this, this, this body, this... this um, Oh, what are they called? The, I guess they're a foundation that is really how text is displayed online and in mobile apps. It, it's a, it's basically a, just like ASCII. It's a one-to-one mapping between what are called code points, which is numbers, and you know actual textual characters. So, for example, in ninety-seven, the Unicode Consortium. There, David just put it in the chat. Yes, exactly. So they are kind of the arbiter of all these things, and, and most people know the Unicode Consortium if they know them at all because of emoji. So emoji are, are, of course, these fun little you know images you can put in your text messages, and the Unicode consortium are the ones that are the kind of the arbiters of deciding what goes in Unicode, what goes in emoji next. And one kind of cool side note: one of the things that they just did recently was provide. Uh, so for some of these emoji that have people's hands or faces, they have recently added the ability to you know provide different code points for different shades of people's skin. So you know you don't always have to get stuck with. You know the, the the white person's face. You could choose the slightly darker skinned face or the the black person's face. You know, and it, it's something that that they have now recently added. So so the Unicode consortium is. I guess I'm I'm just saying they're they're pretty cool. You know, they've they've definitely like embraced this whole kind of crazy emojis that that, that most people you know most people don't really care about Unicode. It's it works on their website or their mobile app, and they're like that's great. But emojis are kind of one of these little kind of quirky things that they've now adopted as well and are kind of stewards of. But, so yeah, so but kind of back to what Unicode is, it's this mapping of characters, but instead of just handling, you know, characters from A to Z, Unicode handles characters across just about every kind of, of written language that is 
in, in the world currently. So it supports Cyrillic characters and all the Chinese characters and all the Japanese characters and Korean and, and uh, Hindi and Khmer and Lao and all of that stuff. All those characters are now available to type on a, on a keyboard because of the Unicode Consortium. So uh, before this, too, you know, other standards bodies existed that tried to make kind of their own formats uh, you know, for, for international text. So Shift-Gis is one that uh, was popular for Japanese text. Now, the problem with these, though, is that they weren't complete, and they were all, they all kind of had, you know, you'd look at these different sets of code points, and they would have overlapping regions, and they were difficult to encode between. And so Unicode said, we can take all of these code points, and we can merge them into one unified set, and then hopefully that can get adopted by everybody who wants to use text on the Internet. And for the most part, that's happened. So I think that we've kind of, as an Internet society, we've migrated from ASCII and ShiftGIS and all these other kind of um, smaller formats smaller uh, code point mappings. We've moved from that to Unicode now. And I think that that has only done great things for the for the Internet specifically and also, you know, just, just for, for text being read on a computer anywhere. So your There's, terminal now supports Unicode, websites, mobile apps, all that stuff. There's a great article in Model View Culture um, a little while back by a woman named Aditya Mukherjee called I Can Text You a Pile of Poo But I Can't Write My Name. <laughs> um, who's actually critical of the Unicode? Yeah, she's being critical of the Unicode consortium because, in her language, which is Bengali, is treated as a second-class citizen in on the internet, and that until 2005, Unicode didn't even have all the characters from the Bengali alphabet. So, mm-hmm. her example was if you wanted to write the word suddenly. Um, you had to combine three separate unrelated characters, and it was sort of a convention, sort of like spelling out W with slashes. And even today, when she wants to write her own name, which is not only a common Indian name, but one of the top thousand names in the United States as well, the mm. final letter in her name still doesn't have its own Unicode character. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's that's unfortunate. I, I do know that the Unicode consortium is constantly revamping you know, the code point set uh, and the fact that they are a consortium, you know, they're they're kind of a committee, I guess. They're the stewards of the standard. Um, but you know, it's it's a good point that you make here, Corlin, that it's it's still got a lot of work to go. So yeah, I mean, we're definitely not done with the set yet. Yeah, it's not a solved problem yet. No, definitely not. Uh, it is worth noting that it has made great progress. I guess it's my point. There, there's been a lot of progress made because I, when I was on the internet for the first time in probably 2001 or something, when I was like 12 years old. You know, the, the only character encoding that existed was, I think it was Western, what was it called, Western encoding or something, which was basically ASCII with a couple of accented characters. And, um, you know, the Unicode really, it existed, but it was not widely adopted. And now, at least now we have this framework for defining other characters. This has been a really great conversation, and um, I really appreciate you coming on the show. We're going to do picks now, and then you'll have a chance to say goodbye. So, David, you want to start us off with some picks? You bet. I've uh, uh, got lots of fluff and uh, no stuff, I guess. So back in 2008, 2009, uh, when I really got into Ruby on Rails, internationalization, localization, minimization, which are I1810L10N and M10N were all the rage. Everybody was excited about this, and so we really were taking words and intranumeralizing them. Those of you born after 1998, you might not know that I-1810 is just... It's because the word internationalization is 20 letters long, and if you take the I and the N off, you have 18 letters left. So the abbreviation is I, 18 letters, and then N. And the same thing with... Yeah, that's accessible. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And it fits in 40 bytes. I got it. Anyway, unless you're using MCBS or... Anyway. Anyway, I got so wound up about this that I ended up writing a code snippet called uh, I-17N. And Cameron was telling me before the show that I should convert this into a gem. If I do that before this goes live, I will post a link in the show notes to the gem. Um, that needs to be on NPM now. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I-17N is, of course, the word intranumeralization, which is 19 letters long. So when you take the I and the N off, you've got 17 letters left. And all it does is take a string, give you back the first and last letters, and then the number of things. So, yeah, my name becomes D3D. It's just kind of cool. It's in one of my private repositories in a directory called Stupid. So, you know, just, you know, forewarned. Buyer um, beware. <laughs> yes, buyer beware. I had another pick, but I can't remember what it is. Oh, I was going to pick the, the falsehoods programmers believe about names, and we already mentioned that in the show. So, them's my picks. Awesome. How about you, Sam? 
Yeah, I think I'll just do one today. Um, the uh, fellow people who have been on the call with me might have been wondering why I'm sort of antsy on the video. And the reason is this thing uh, called the Mogo seat. It's sort of like a, a monopod for your butt. There's this uh, extensible aluminum bit like a cane. Uh, at the bottom of that is this big uh, sort of round rubber squishy thing that sits on the ground. And then at the top, there's just this thing that's shaped kind of like your pelvic bone. And you sort of lean back against this thing and it turns you into human tripod. And uh, as ergonomic equipment goes, this is reasonably affordable. It's 100 bucks, uh, and it lets you sort of move around. Uh, a little bit more naturally than you might if you're in a chair. And I find that it helps me stay at a standing desk longer than I would if I were just on my own two feet. So that's my nice. pick. It's the Mogo seat, and I'll put a link in the show notes. Awesome. Uh, I have a pick I wanted to share. A couple picks. Um, the first is a talk by Schneems from RailsConf 2016. The video is available now. Um, it's called Saving Sprockets. And um, he kind of had a gimmick going. He came on stage dressed like Indiana Jones and kind of doing an Indiana Jones skit. But the talk was pretty serious. It talks He talks about what happened when Joshua Peake, the maintainer of Sprockets, left the project. Um, and he covers some really interesting points about like transition planning for an open source project and the fact that you know, you might feel betrayed when a maintainer leaves, but maintainers don't actually owe us anything, but we do owe them respect. Um, he talks about how the act of helping out with an open source project helps to retain and create new maintainers. And basically, it's about acknowledging that maintainers won't be around forever, and how can you prepare accordingly. So he shared the talk, the video of the talk on his blog, and he has a transcript available as well. I'll post a link to that in the show notes. The second pick today is a game. If you know me, you know I don't play games very often. I have a hard time getting engaged with games. But this one is kind of caught my interest. It's called Calvino Noir. It's on Apple's Best of 2015 list. It's a game with a film noir setting, which is probably why it appeals to me so much. You control three characters, each with different abilities, and you're moving them through these beautiful sets of 1930s architecture. And the whole game is Shades of Grey. Um, it's a mystery plot that requires conspiring with multiple characters, and the main character provides a voiceover narration, just like in film noir movies. Um, seven levels, three acts, very well voice acted. It's available for macOS and iOS. It's available on Steam and for the PS4. And that's it, Calvino Noir. That's my pick. So Cameron, what are your picks today? Well, I'm a little disappointed that I wasn't on a podcast with an epic D. Brady hot sauce pick. But I guess that, you know. Okay, so te teaser, I am tracking down one. A friend of mine, well, not a friend of mine, well, yes, a friend of mine. Uh, <laughs> I do actually have friends, people. They just wanted to admit to it. And uh, anyway, a friend of mine introduced me to a gentleman uh, a couple weeks ago who mentioned a hot sauce. I can't remember the name of it. I'm trying to get back in touch with this guy to track this person down. I'm, I'm actually hunting down a rare sauce for you guys right now. And, it, and because it's because he gave me a very specific food pairing for it that was just mind-blowing. So I am working on it, I promise. We, All right, we, awesome. We are working tirelessly behind the scenes. <laughs> awesome. Okay, for my picks today, I want to lump kind of three different things into, into one pick that's um, for ICU and CLDR. So these data sets are very, very cool data sets. It's amazing that they exist. It's amazing that a company like IBM and other companies like Google and Apple all contribute to these things to make the state of internationalization better across, you know, basically all software. So what I want to do is pick ICU and CLDR. ICU is, is something that's written by uh, IBM. They maintain that project. CLDR is written, it's a, it's a contributing thing that, I, that a lot of companies contribute to, um, and I'll put links to those as well in the chat here, and, and hopefully they can be moved into the show notes. Um, and then also the gem that I have collaborated on with a number of other people called Twitter CLDR. There's a Ruby version of this and a JavaScript version of this. They're available on GitHub, and they're basically just ports of all these internationalization features from ICU to Ruby and JavaScript. Um, another pick I want to do is a fun kind of game pick, and this is a game called HackNet. I was told by a coworker about HackNet. If you've ever played Uplink, it's kind of a modern version of Uplink. Oh, cool. Ooh. Yeah. One of the cool things about HackNet, though, is whereas in Uplink you, you would click buttons and there wasn't a lot of technical meat to it, HackNet kind of tries to mirror as much as it can kind of the real world of using a Unix terminal. So you hope you open up the game and you, you have available to you commands like CD and LS and CAT. Um, you know, and there, there of course are 
Yeah, and these commands do what you'd expect them to do. There's a file system. You can look in the bin folder, and you can see, you know, can, you can SCP files, literally the SCP command. You can SCP files to your own workstation. So it's it's kind of a more um, nerdy version of Uplink, and I've been really enjoying playing. And there's a there's a campaign, a storyline that goes along with it. So I have a link for that as well. It's it's uh, something you can buy on the Steam store. I think it's only five dollars, pretty affordable. Uh, and then the other pick I have, and I have to pick this because. It's something that's close to my heart now, but I'm a Golden State Warriors fan, and I don't want to alienate your listeners who are maybe Cavaliers or Thunder or Trailblazers fans, but the Warriors are a professional basketball team, and they have done very well this year, and I've been really enjoying watching their games, uh, so go Warriors. I had a conversation recently where I, I decided that I would be really interested in sports if the teams were actually made up of what their names say. <laughs> so like, oh, yeah. I would love to see Warriors fight Giants. Like, I would go to that. <laughs> I would totally do that. Yeah, that's that's funny. I, that's their names are so they're so not what they actually are. Although they have been, you know, they have been battling this year for the top spot. So yeah, I guess you could say they're they're warriors in a metaphorical sense. My uh, my daughter pointed out that the most boring game would be between the socks and the socks. So. <laughs> nice. Just socks laying out on the field or something. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, Cameron, it's been really great and really educational talking today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We've had a really great time, and I hope you enjoyed it as well. I did. Thank you guys so much. It's been it's been something I really wanted to do for a long time and uh, listen to you all the time. So what an honor. Thanks so much, you guys. Awesome. Thanks, it's everybody. Been great having you on. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Thank we'll you. talk to you next week. All right. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Happy hacking. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit c a c h e f l y dot com to learn more. Would you like to join the conversation with the rogues and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at rubyrogues.com slash parlay.